welcome back to this week's episode of The Art of Science and Controversy. As you may have seen, things are very different. Uh, this is not my recording area. I am with Mr. Ben Stiles. We are doing uh, crossover episodes, if you will. So make sure to check out his podcast as well. It's called The B-Side with Ben Stiles. That's me. Uh, you can find it on... What platforms? Uh, wherever. You can find it on YouTube, you can find it on Spotify, Apple, wherever you find your podcasts, I think. Uh, check it out. It's, it's not too bad. I just talk to people I think are interesting. Yeah, fair <laughs> that's, enough. That's the pitch. Today, for this episode on the Art of Science and Controversy, we're going to be looking, just as an opinion piece, at the opi opioid crisis. I'm going to go over some statistics with you later, but for right now we're just going to be discussing what exactly the crisis is, how it's being adverted, or how it's at least being tried to combat, what the government is trying to do, and we'll just talk opinions about how that's going. So as the very first bit, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit, tell us a bit about who you are? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's more the theme of your podcast, this question. But uh... That's true, I'm, I'm happy to introduce myself. Hello everyone, I'm uh, Ben. I... I'm currently a kinesiology student, though I would love to study neuroscience. I think people are really fascinating, and, and, and psychology has been a big interest to me. Uh, I have a lot of history with addiction in my family, and it's something I've been studying out of personal interest, so I certainly have my own opinions on it, but um, ultimately I'm not educated enough to spew like real factual information. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a kinesiology student at this point in time. But I've read some books, I got some recommendations, which I'll say at the end, and um, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think before we start a discussion on addiction and opioids and all that sort of stuff, um, it's important to have definitions, because I have my own definitions that I've learned over my own, I guess, interest in this, and I think they're quite useful, because if we just say like words addiction and disorders, stuff like that, it gets a bit muddied. So I would, I would like to define addiction. Mm -hmm. This is borrowed from Judson Brewer. It's um, continuous use despite negative consequence. Mm -hmm. So there's no drugs involved in addiction. Addiction is just something that we do continuously that affects us negatively in some way. It could be absolutely anything. Absolutely. People get addicted to gambling, sex, drugs. They get addicted to their phones. They get addicted to games. Anything. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. Even exercise. Like you can exercise to a point where it causes troubles in your life, yet you keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it's an addiction. A disorder is an addiction, well there's a lot of different kinds of disorders, but in, in this case of substance abuse, a disorder is an addiction that has a certain parameter around it, so usually it's six months of continuous use with attempts to stop that have failed, and it has to cause a certain amount of damage in the person's life for it to be considered a disorder. So like opioid use disorder, it has to meet certain criteria. So clinically you wouldn't be considered a drug addict until you have the disorder, but you can still be addicted to things and not have the dis uh, a disorder around it. It just depends the degree in which it affects your life. Because not everyone has substance abuse disorders, but basically everyone has their own addictions, things that they do in their lives. I think a lot of people associate the word disorder with something wrong in the brain, but it's not related to that at all. It's just the time period of attempting to stop something, not necessarily something that's been caused in the brain. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of factors to it. Addiction is ultimately a, a disorder of the brain. So it's cognitive behavioral issue in a way. It's like how you think about things, how your actions get made. And due to the nature of some drugs and just the way that our brains are made, we crave things, we, we want to like seek out pleasure. Mm -hmm. So 
it, it kind of like plays on our chemistry in a way. It's very mm -hmm. powerful. So it is brain, but it's a lot of other things. So yeah, I don't know. I guess that's just important to keep in mind. Addictions, uh, it's different in a way than disorders and we all have our own addictions. Not everyone has disorders. Yeah, fair enough. So what tends to be, if there is any overarching theme, the primary cause of addiction on an individual scale? I would say for an individual, an addiction is basically always an attempt to solve a problem. So if, if people have an issue in their lives, addiction is a way to solve that. It gives them short-term release or, or enjoyment or escape, but in the long run, it's problematic. Mm -hmm. And you can see this with anything, like using your phone or uh, smoking cigarettes or, mm -hmm. or even opioids, you know? It's all an addiction. People who are in pain will take painkillers to feel less pain. So, so it starts off as just a mostly normal thing, a solution to an issue, and then it grows into an addiction from something like being on your phone too much to distract yourself from your real life. And then eventually that habit, that solution, becomes an addiction over time. Yeah. Eventually a disorder. Exactly. So like there are like video game use disorders. Like that's a real, real problem for a lot of people. Because it, it becomes an escape to the point where you can't live your life normally. So yeah, I think I think the primary cause is simply people trying to solve a problem, but it's maladaptive. Like it's an adaptation that our brain makes to solve an issue, but the it doesn't really solve the issue. It just kind of makes things you know, worse. Puts it away and then in the long term creates a whole other issue. Exactly. So what then might be some of the causes of addiction on a national scale, like a country's wealth levels or education levels, anything like that? How would factors like those play into addiction and the addiction rates? Uh, I think it's a, it's a huge part because what happens to a, a nation happens to every individual. So when there's economic recessions, it's a big issue. When people lose their jobs, it, it can create a lot of well, again, problems that people try to solve. Mm -hmm. um, a big one, especially in North America, has been the overprescription of opiate medication. There's, there's a lot of people being prescribed these drugs that don't necessarily need them. Mm -hmm. And with opioids in particular, they create a physiological dependence. So opioids bind to the endorphin receptors in your brain. And what these receptors are for is to relieve pain, but it's also the joy and the pleasure we get from play and social connection. Hmm. So it gives people a feeling of connectivity that they don't necessarily have. And then they crave that. Exactly. Um, and the issue is when you take drugs, your body always aims to go into homeostasis. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have heard this word, but it's just the, the body's tendency to want to be normal, mm -hmm. basically. Like, if something really pleasurable happens, you're going to feel a craving that's the wanting of it more as you return to your baseline level of dopamine and all these other hormones. So the being crazily um, pleasured by, for example, an opioid, that would eventually become your new normal. Exactly. You just want to be there no matter what. It's not so much craving, it's like a, like a need. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is craving. It, it is a need. And the issue in particular with drugs that create physiological dependencies is that when people stop taking them, since their normal is this super elevated level, when they don't have them, their baseline just falls down to this unbearable level. So that kind of facilitates the cycle in a way. Mm -hmm. Though, um, I think a lot of people demonize drugs, and I don't think that drugs are the issue. 
people have addictions. Drugs don't have problems, but it's people with problems. It's sort of going on the um, guns don't uh, cause harm, people do sort of theme, except, I guess, more valid. I, I guess. It's not... I don't, I don't know... Like, if you just have a gun on a table, it's not going to kill anyone. But once you start giving everybody guns... Like, if you gave everybody yeah, it's a heroin... And on, like if you if every person in North America got a shot of heroin tomorrow, there'd probably be a lot more opioid addicts because people who have issues would realize that in a way it solves their problems, mm. and then they would, and, and a lot of people don't. Like two thirds of people who use what we consider hard drugs, things like methamphetamine, mm. cocaine, heroin, are not addicted. So for every every person you see on the streets, there's two people living their lives normally. People with kids with jobs. Um, and it doesn't classify as a disorder for them. They're people that can literally be grown-ups about it and just use their drugs and live their life. I see. So it's a combination. It's not just the drug causing the problem. It's not just the person. It's a combination of how that person interacts with that drug and the availability of that drug for different people. Yeah, uh, availability is a huge thing. Like, um, environment is a big part of it. If you're in an environment where people use drugs often like here we're in vancouver shout out to one of the coolest cities in the world uh, but we have a notorious uh, skid row the downtown east side where yes. it's it's north america's most concentrated area of intravenous drug use so drugs like opioids and if you're in that environment it's very easy to continue using drugs because you can't really leave you're shunned by the people around you and everyone around you is doing the same things that you are but if you're in like i don't know Nelson BC. Good luck finding opioids, you know? So it's it's not just the drug becomes your new normal, it's also the normal of the people around you, and so by association you want to um, blend in with those around you, and you can't escape even if you want to, because everyone else just shuns you, pushing you back to that normal. Absolutely, and I mean, uh, uh, talking about it on like a, a, a national scale, or even just on like an area scale, like, um, it's it's very enticing when there's people doing something that you want to do around you. It kind of creates a culture of drug use in a way. Mm. So going back to that original question of the causation of these problems on a national scale, it's not just wealth or education, it's also the nation's outlook towards drugs, not just the government's outlook, but also the people that are around you in that nation. Oh, absolutely. If you're around people who are, who are using drugs often, it, it very much can enable you to do so, and if you're someone who's vulnerable to addiction, to these disorders, it can be very destructive. Um, I, I think there's other questions about um, policy, so I don't, I don't want to go too deep no. into that. No, no, just no, yet, no, just yet. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so, if, if it's a nice segue to what you're talking about, then absolutely. Okay. Well, about drug policy, um, one of the biggest issues is treating drug addicts as criminals. So, um, Psychologically, addiction is viewed as not having a choice. It's a point where, or, or a disorder is viewed as not having a choice. I guess addiction, you could say something similar, but in particular, people who have used drugs for a long time, they've tried to stop, but they haven't been able to. Um, it's a disorder of the brain. It, 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 it pulls on these places that create uh, our motivation for things. I could go on a whole spiel about dopamine. I don't think we, we have the effort, energy for that. So, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that these people don't really have a choice, yet they're being 
treated as if they did. They're being judged by the criminal system as if it was their choice. If there was no choice, would it really be a crime? Like a lot of people who have mental health disorders will be exempt from certain crimes that they commit because they weren't in control of themselves. Yet in most places around the world, we're very progressive here in Vancouver. The laws have been becoming better, but it's still been a huge issue for like a majority of this country's history, North America, Europe. People who are addicted are treated as criminals even though they're doing something they don't really have a choice over. Mm -hmm. And because of that stigma, they can't really find help. Like if you're a criminal and you go to the government because you have a problem and you want help, they're not going to help you, they're going to put you in jail. Mm -hmm. Which is really messed up. Um, but it's just the way things have been because the, the legislation treats drug use as if it was a choice and in a lot of cases it's not. Mm -hmm. It's as you were saying with homeostasis, it is not necessarily just what you, it, it, it's a craving created within you by your body. It's like how you need to regulate your body's temperature to exactly, what is it, 37.2 degrees centigrade? Just like that, except with a need for drug, not temperature. Truly, people don't, a lot of people don't have a choice. So as far as withdrawals go, when people stop, it's called going cold turkey. You get clammy, you, your skin gets all these welts, you feel like you're dying. It's one of the worst feelings you can possibly imagine because it's literally all of your brain's ability to feel pleasure and goodness and connection being ripped out of itself mm -hmm. for like weeks. So people don't want to do that. Yeah. So they keep using drugs. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to get used to having your body temperature artificially raised to something absurd like 98 around 38.2 degrees centigrade. Your body is just not going to react well to an entire degree centigrade change. Yeah, it's you wouldn't be able to sleep. Yeah. You would just be in agony for weeks. Like, it's really difficult for people to stop, which is why they don't. And um, there are a lot of programs here to help people with that, but not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. um, as far as, like, uh, legislation goes, Vancouver is actually very, very good, compared to the rest of the world, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, we have safe injection sites. There is naloxone being given out. Like, if you go downtown, you see those people with the little black... Um, kits with the, the uh, Narcan injections saves a lot of lives but uh, oh, also I remember hearing on the news recently I don't know what the current status of this is but they actually uh, stopped arresting people for possessing drugs hmm. so you can have a certain amount of heroin you can have a certain amount of um, crack or meth or any of these drugs and not be arrested hmm. so that basically there were so many people using drugs the police couldn't arrest them yeah. so they made a law to just allow people to have them, yeah. which is very sensible. If it were up to me, uh, you would just be allowed to get drugs. I guess at safe injection sites, which is a whole other topic that we could get into as well. Yeah, and going on that with um, safe injection sites set up by authorities that will provide drugs to people that, again, just don't have a choice. How do you think the um, government's outlook on drugs affects the ability of people to get out of an addiction? I think it's a lot better than it has been, but there's a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're at like the most progressive we've been here in Vancouver, really, but some places um, have, have had really successful programs where they've literally given out free heroin to addicts that was clean and safe 
for multiple times a day, I think this was in, um, in London when they had a really bad opioid problem, they gave people free heroin and it allowed them to get their lives back because they could wean themselves off. They didn't have to spend all their time paying for drugs. Like, um, yeah, it helped solve the root issue that they were attempting to use heroin to solve. Exactly. Or it took out the issue that heroin was causing in their lives so they could address the root issue. Mm -hmm. They could use that money that they would be spending on heroin on improving their life. Exactly. And therefore, their life is no longer an issue causing them to... Yeah, it allows to them to get out of the environment where they're using drugs with other people who are using. It allows them to stop having to fuel this addiction. Like, heroin's expensive. I don't know if you know this, but like a, a gram of heroin... That's in big air quotes if you're not watching this. Um, because it's like... I don't know, heroin you find here is usually like 1-2% to 2 fentanyl and then 98% like random garbage, like barbiturates and, and benzos and other drugs, they just cram into it to basically cut it. Mm -hmm. Because if you gave people pure fentanyl, well, one, you wouldn't make any money, and two, you would just kill them. Yeah. So <laughs> this is pretty tricky. But um, anyway, b besides the whole not actually having drugs, a, a gram of opioids, or opates, as they're technically called, because they're not made from the opium poppy. There's a difference between opioids and opates. It's $160 a gram, Quinn. Wow. So you need to work a lot yeah. to, to fuel that hobby. Addiction, yeah. <laughs> okay, I use hobby wrong, but I think you get, you get what I'm saying. It's yeah. very hard to, um, to, to be an addict. It's very expensive. So people, people, um, people ruin their, well, well, basically, not well, they do ruin their lives for it, but will spend all of their time to just sustain that, not feeling like you're going to die. Mm. It's very sad. Yeah, having your life taken away by that. An attempted solution that just ruins you. Totally. And um, the, the problem with things like that is it, it really works. Like if you break your leg and you're in an extreme amount of pain and you get morphine, you're not in pain anymore. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who's been really traumatized or, or, or in physical pain or, or have these terrible things happen to you, and you take a drug that just literally takes that away from you for like four to eight hours or whatever, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't, like your logical brain isn't strong enough in a way. It's, it's rare to find, or not rare, there's more people that can do it than don't. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, um, it ruins their lives. Mm -hmm. For a lot More people it doesn't. That's the thing. I think a lot of people don't realize that. But um, It's not necessarily a this is going to destroy you, just depending on the person. Exactly. It's, it's an individual thing. Um, and so going on that, do you think addictive personality is genetic and could be inherited? Uh, yeah, actually. I think there's different factors to it. I would say that the most important thing is sensitivity. Hmm. So some people are more sensitive to picking up trauma and it actually can get passed on, not only genetically, but epigenetically. Mm -hmm. So if a father has experienced um, some form of trauma, or he has a lot of stress in his body, is dis dysregulated stress, it will actually literally change the way his sperm are, and his child will be more likely to, or, or be more sensitive to being stressed. Mm -hmm. So it gets carried on genetically, some people are more sensitive to it, some people have worse abilities at inhibition, like ADHD is a big one. There's a strong genetic component for ADHD, even though it's not only genetic, because even uh, maternal twins, 
twins who have the same DNA only have an 80% chance of both having ADHD. So if one of them has ADHD, there's a 20% chance that the other one doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it's not only genetic. Scientists don't really know. Mm. Um, at least in my belief, there's a large environmental factor to it. I think it's an adaptation to, um, to difficult situations that kind of gets like programmed into your brain. But anyway, ADHD is a whole other topic. ADHD is a part of the genetic component. Your parents' lives is a big component of it. And the other thing is the environment. I think the environment is huge because you can't really parse out like your parents' experiences. It's a big part of um, how we are raised and how we deal with the world is how your parents interact. Mm -hmm. And if your parents hold a lot of trauma or issues, it can easily kind of get pushed onto you even if you don't necessarily realize it. Um, and a lot of people are like, they'll say like, oh, but nothing bad happened. But the issue is nothing good happened either. You weren't nurtured in a way that... Um, Combated that genetic component from your parents' trauma or lives. Exactly. And a lot of cases, it, it isn't a genetic component either. Some people will have perfectly healthy genetics and not be predisposed to addiction, but they'll still like go to war or have a really traumatic accident happen to them or something something negative will happen in their lives that causes them to feel bad and, and need something or search out something to solve that uh, emotional problem. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination then, not just of like quote unquote pure genetics going down the family tree, but also the lives of those that came before you, how that affected you via epigenetics, and then also your own personal life and the traumas that you may have experienced and then just a match of all of those things coming together. Exactly. There's, there's a whole whole bunch of things coming together. Um, like in my, my family, on my dad's side, it's a line of addicts. Like my great-granddad, he was an alcoholic. My granddad was an alcoholic. My dad's a drug addict. My uncle's a drug addict. It goes down the family, you know? But what part of that is learned by lack of emotional connection or social interactions versus what part of that is actually in the genes is very difficult to parse out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It seems like we uh, can't really do a scientific study or anything on that. Just too many things and also ethics, of course. Yeah, well, um, there have been studies done on it. Um, I think the one, if you're curious about the studies, you should look into the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. It was actually started at obesity clinics. Because um, I think a lot of, not all people who are obese, obese is a, obesity is a brain disorder. Anyway, we can get into obesity another <laughs> time. But um, they found out that a lot of people were actually using food as an addiction, or food was an addiction for them, which caused these problems. And um, that's where they started coming up with the idea of the adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. So like, people with adverse childhood experiences were far more likely to be addicted to things. And that would be not, again, going back to the idea of not even genetics, just their own traumas. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess before we go to the next topic, I would like to say that um, in particular ADHD is a really big one because half of people with ADHD will have a substance abuse disorder within their lives. That's interesting. Half. Wow. And not like just an addiction, like I mentioned, continuous use despite negative consequence, but an actual like clinical, clinically valid disorder. Anyway, just, just saying. ADHD is a big one. It's definitely yeah. part of the, the genetic... Um, uh, inherited issue. Mm -hmm. Why do you think with this whole topic of drugs that we don't see, considering how big of an issue it is, particularly in Vancouver and BC, that we don't see more of it? I mean with multiple deaths per day in Vancouver alone, 
Why isn't this a much larger issue, much more recognized in the news outlets? I think we've been very desensitized to it. Like, uh, it's so commonplace, like, uh, I'm sure you've had this experience, I know all my friends have had this experience, but just going to downtown Vancouver and seeing all of these people in Skid Row being high on drugs, being uh, dealt drugs, doing drugs, being, being like having terrible posture, all these things, it's like we've become so used to it that it's, it's very dehumanizing for these people. And it's crazy to think about, like each and every one of those people is someone's daughter, someone's, someone's, someone's son, someone's father, someone's mother, like these are all real people that have problems and their problems have led them to even bigger problems where they can't get out of these really bad situations. Mm -hmm. We really struggle to deal with that as a society and as individuals. Honestly, I believe a big part of it is simply like a mirror. Like we don't want to look at that part of ourselves because mm -hmm. it's very human. Mm -hmm. It's very, very human. So it's a combination of just desensitization that's been happening for so long and then we don't want to look at it, so for the most part, well, we don't. And dehumanization as well, just a combination of all three. Yeah, I think the dehumanization comes from our own desire to not want to see that in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because, um, like, it's, it's not a good sight. It's really sad to see. And if, if every time you just went downtown to buy something, you just felt all these people's pain and sadnesses, it would be overwhelming. Like, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So the only thing you can really do is, is just kind of keep going with your life and try and put the blinders on. Like, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I, it's heartbreaking to me, frankly. Yeah, yeah, it is. We have different laws and regulations, and they all interact with different welfare systems. So like you were talking about earlier, uh, the potential for safe injection sites and stuff like that, and then other welfare systems. How do you think the laws and welfare systems should interact in order to um, help combat addiction. I'm, I'm just gonna say this right now. I have I am not at all politically inclined. Fair enough. I have no idea what, of anything about politics, frankly. Yeah, this is why I interview other people. <laughs> I'm good at playing dumb. No, no, I get it. But um, if it were up to me, I think that one, there should be more more help for people, less less stigma, and it's really easy to say judge people less mm. but to actually do it i think it requires a really systematic change so like uh recently just at like bus stops i've been seeing things like addiction is not a choice it's a treatable it's a disorder like just at like bus stops i'm like wow that's really cool that, that the city is literally telling people that it's a problem for people it's not a choice mm. but it has to be a lot deeper than that like a few bus stops isn't going to change well you mentioned the safe injection sites i think it's really good like I actually have family members that would not be here today if it wasn't for safe injection sites mm -hmm. so I appreciate them immensely mm -hmm. as far as other policies I think that all drugs should be legal like if you wanted to get heroin you should be able to go to a pharmacist and say that you want it and they'll talk talk you through how to use it safely or you already know mm -hmm. and then you get a safe drug that's not tampered with that you have a known dosage for and then you can just use it and that could be set up with a government-sponsored doctor system that people would not need to pay for as part of medical care to see that those people are actually needing to get off of a problem and not... Yeah, but I think it. even more so, I think that people should just be allowed to do it. Even someone that's not 
addicted per se. Absolutely. Well, again, two thirds of people who use these drugs are not disordered, which means they can live their lives and, and have it not be a problem for them. So what about these two-thirds of people? They're not drug addicts, they're not living downtown and homeless and on Skid Row, but they still need a safe drug. Do you want to, mm. if, if it's something that you want to do, and you're a reasonable human being about it, there's no reason you should have to risk your life. Mm. I see your logic. When you were first saying that anyone, um, I wasn't thinking so much about the things in the drugs, but I was thinking more getting people off of a problem that is keeping them back, not necessarily the people that are still doing fine. I do think, though, that there should be a compromise between that, because the people there, the two-thirds that are living perfectly normal lives, supposedly, I think we can assume, been getting drugs, even if they are laced with other things, and using them and know how to use them. And then the money to buy the drugs for that two-thirds, where does the money come from? I think that's always one of the biggest issues for healthcare things. Oh, where does the money come from? Well, honestly, it's not that expensive. Like, making fentanyl is pretty cheap. That's kind of the issue, honestly, is that there's no money in it. Something something like like uh, fentanyl can be made chemically. It's an opate. So, just a little clarification for people who don't know. Opioids are drugs made from the opium of a poppy. And then opates are synthetically made opioids. They both bind to the same receptors in the brain and they have a very similar structure. The only difference between them is the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. Mm. So something like fentanyl or carfentanil has these really small molecules. Mm. Um, I don't remember the exact chemistry of it, but they get through the brain much easier than something like opium or morphine. Mm. So the only difference between something like morphine and heroin is that heroin is just more potent. Mm. And it's the same thing with fentanyl, except fentanyl is synthetically made. So anyway, that being said, there's no money in it. Like, if you're a pharmaceutical company and you make fentanyl for people who don't have money to begin with, mm-hmm. you're not making anything. There's no incentive. Mm-hmm. So unless it's governmental, uh, like a systematic change, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing for a lot of other drugs. It's not that hard to make, frankly. Still. Oh, yeah, sorry. You are talking about the money for the people? Yeah, because the two-thirds, I, at least in my mind... A more dire situation is being that one-third. Absolutely. So if if you could sponsor the one-third and give that one-third the drugs that they need, but not the two-thirds, and that would save a massive amount of money for the government and the taxpayers, and then get the people that are the most vulnerable and the most destroyed out of that uh, normalized situation living on the streets with that, other people. That that's very true. Drugs. Maybe you could have a program where it would be free or subsidized for people who had disorders and then people who were buying drugs could buy the much less expensive cleaner drugs from the government they would still contribute money to the system and get what they wanted at a much safer um in a much safer way and and at a, at a lower price mm-hmm. like one of the issues is that um because these drugs are illegal and they're so dangerous to make, to cut, to sell, that the price gets hiked up artificially. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy to me. So but it's not the making that's the issue, it's the distribution that spikes the price so much. Um, totally. For people. Um, and for people who don't know where uh, Vancouver gets its drugs from, this is an interesting thing. It actually gets mailed from China. So fentanyl gets made and it gets put into packages that are one ounce, which means that they're put in a letter, like a literal mail letter with an ounce of fentanyl, and it gets mailed here, and then they just ship so much over 
that <laughs> the, the postal service can't find all of it. Mm -hmm. And one ounce of fentanyl will be made into a hundred ounces of the drugs you buy on the street because mm -hmm. it's so potent. Mm -hmm. Like the difference between overdosing and having a, a recreational use of fentanyl is the difference between two grains of salt and one and a half grains of salt. Wow. It's crazy. So yeah, if, if, if there was a source here where people could get safe drugs for less money, this would not be an issue because people would stop. There'd be no need for people to buy it, ship it, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's just... That's just... Yeah, and then there could be some sort of registration system because I, I don't think it should be open to just anyone. I think it should. Yeah. That's, hey, that's my own personal belief. If you don't agree with me, that's perfectly fine. But in my mind, people are going to use drugs whether you want them to or not. So by just saying that you can't do it, you're creating a group of people that will go out of their way to do it anyway. So why wouldn't you? Well, this is true, actually. That's a good point. Because, like, people use drugs, Quinn. Mm -hmm. It does not matter if you tell them to or not. Mm -hmm. Like, it's illegal. You see the amount of people using drugs out there. For every person on the skid row, imagine two people living their lives doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of people, right? Yeah, true. I just don't want to be enabling people that aren't currently doing drugs to do drugs and become... But that's going to happen anyway. Not necessarily. At, at least it would be much harder for it to happen under more, I suppose, authoritarian... Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm not that. saying you should be able to just like walk into Shopper's Drug Mart and be like, one heroin, please. <laughs> but um, you should be able to talk to a medical professional, a pharmacist, tell them that it's something you want to do and they should be allowed to give it to you. I I think under if you are already doing it, I think that would be a good solution. I don't think so much for people that are wanting to start per se. People want to start though. That's the issue. It's like you can't stop people from wanting to do things. You just have to let them do it in the safe way. I'm I'm very like I'm I'm a big believer in that personally. Like people are going to do drugs. I just want them to do it safely. You can't stop people from getting into it other than educating them. Knowledge is power. You, the, the best thing, in my opinion, that the government can do is educate people and give them the choice. Yeah, education and choice. Because you know what, if you're like, you don't do drugs, you can't do them, but you want to do them, you're just gonna do them anyway. Yeah, I agree that there should be a choice. I think the, just the distinction is that you want complete choice for absolutely anyone. I want a uh, very Difficult choice. I want it to be difficult to. Yeah, make I'm not the saying it should be easy. Suggests. I'm just saying that they should have a choice. Yes. Okay. I agree there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People that have had an addiction, if they were to move on, how would that addiction permanently affect their life, even after they've gotten off of it? I think it can be in a lot of ways. A lot of people can't stop. Like some some people will go years sober and then start using drugs again. It's very difficult to be clean off drugs. Um, Just in cycles. Yeah, totally. Um, though, ultimately, I think the biggest way it affects people is it, it kind of forces them to limit themselves. Like, um, uh, I don't know if you know much about Alcoholics Anonymous. Not much, no. It's a 12-step it's a program. It was supposed to be a 13-step program. We can get into that in a bit. <laughs> but basically, these people have to learn to live with themselves even though that they can't solve their problems. So I think big things are like, therapy is huge, being able to be more comfortable in yourself, even though you have these cravings or these urges or these underlying issues that you want to deal with. So tackling those, that's a big part of it. Um, 
removing yourself from the environment. So like if you're in an environment where people use drugs often, it will be very difficult for you to stop and your chances of relapsing will be much higher. So like if you're, you're an opioid addict and you get clean, like you, you go through withdrawals, you're back to homeostasis, you haven't been doing drugs for 100 days, and then you don't have a house, so you just go sit right back down on the downtown east side. Mm. You don't have a chance. Yeah. I'm not saying you don't. Don't, don't take it to heart. Yeah. But um, I think that your chances are a lot worse than if you were out of that situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think, I think it's, um, it's a tricky thing. It's really hard uh, for people to stop, especially when they've been doing it for a long time, mm -hmm. just because of the way it plays with the brain. But um, it's it more of a permanent need, not just that uh, more temporary homeostasis returning to what's normal. That normal stays elevated for much longer if you've been on the habit for a long time. Yeah, and um, I, I think it's m more than just the homeostasis. I think it's like a spiritual issue. Like, I'm, I'm not talking about like, oh, the spirit leaves your body when you die, that sort of stuff. But it's like... Uh, a, a deeply psychological subconscious kind of thing like if you've had these experiences of being in states where your brain chemistry is so wildly altered compared to what normal people would consider pleasure it's very hard to let go of that um, especially when you feel pain and it gives you relief from it it's it's quite tricky uh, one of my favorite sayings from Alcoholics Anonymous I think it's very true is no matter how far along the road you are you're always the same distance from the ditch. And um, like you could, you could be 10 years sober and have one drink and have it spiral into reusing drugs, you know? Um, and for some people, they'll stop using hard drugs, but they'll be able to drink or smoke pot or do whatever they want and not have it be an issue. For other people, they won't be able to do any drugs. It's very personal. It just depends on the person and how they want to live their lives. But yeah, ultimately, uh, for an addict, no matter how far along the road of recovery, recovery they are, they're always the same distance from falling back into it, from having it ruin their lives again. Mm -hmm. As far as getting off of the addiction goes, how would recovery look like? Um, recovery is different for everybody. A lot of people find use in something like a 12-step program. So, um, I don't know if you know, yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous, as I mentioned, is a, is a really popular program for people with alcohol addictions. There's Narcotics Anonymous, um, all sorts of different ones, Gambling Anonymous, all sorts of different groups for people. Um, and that gives them a sense of connection and community. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will just stop cold turkey and it works. Um, getting yourself out of the environment is a big one, as I mentioned before. But there's a lot of new therapies that are looking very promising. So one thing that's been very... I guess brought into like the cultural zeitgeist at this exact point in time is psychedelic drugs. So um, in particular, MDMA and magic mushrooms are being studied for treating depression, PTSD, and drug addictions. And it might seem funny, oh, you're addicted to drugs, here's more drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, I think it's the experience of these drugs combined with um, professional help that can really help people um, so in the case of PTSD, uh, which can be the cause of a lot of people's addictions, having this underlying issue being trauma and the stress that comes after experiencing it, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy um, actually has been shown to be about 60% effective in, in basically resolving PTSD symptoms, which is basically twice as good as the current gold standard, which is um, cognitive behavioral therapy. 
um, in less time. Mm -hmm. So these people will do two sessions with a trained clinician. They'll do two doses of MDMA. So they'll do one dose and then another dose that's half as strong uh, as the dose starts to wear off. So they can have an extended period in this state and they reprocess their trauma. Um, as far as magic mushrooms goes, the, the, the drugs they use in clinical trials are chemically made psilocybin, which is the pro-drug found in magic mushrooms. So it's what your body metabolizes into psilocin, which is the psychoactive compound. And in those studies, they have found that it really helps people quit drinking. It helps people quit cigarettes. I actually know someone who's managing a study on uh, psilocybin for alcoholism right now. So I'll, I'll get you updated someday when I know what the results are. But it's very promising. Um, the other one that's been really interesting as well is for depression. So a lot of people who are depressed, it's again an underlying issue that people will try to self-medicate for. Um, it's, it's been shown to be very effective for depression. Actually, uh, as far as depression goes, ketamine has been really useful as well. Um, there's a, a it's S-ketamine, I believe. It's a specific form of ketamine. And you can get it prescribed from a doctor. Um, if you've had five years of treatment-resistant depression, which means you've been depressed, you've tried antidepressants, and you're still depressed mm -hmm. for five years, they'll give you ketamine, yeah. and it really works. Well, at least for some people, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a, not guaranteed, a, but a yeah. exactly. And again, with these drugs, it is like you can totally get addicted to doing mushrooms or MDMA. Like MDMA is a very powerful drug. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with ketamine. Ketamine is super addictive, but in certain instances, when the intention is right. Um, when the, the set and the setting is right, when people are able to integrate these experiences into their lives, I think it has a lot of benefit. Um, and then obviously, therapy. Therapy is amazing. I would highly recommend therapy. Um, I think it can also really help people. So get help, um, get, get, reach out to people, find community, um, and, and I, I think there's a really promising world of therapies coming in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I wanted to say about the 12-step programs the dude who founded it was actually an alcoholic and he did LSD and it helped him stop drinking alcohol. That is interesting. So the 13th step was supposed to be LSD in 12 step programs, mm -hmm. but people were like, you can't do that. So it became a 12 step program. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's all spiritual. It's all in the brain, yeah. some deep psychological thing. But, um, I think, I think there's, there's, there's hope. Do you have any, resources for people to learn more about those therapies or drug use in general? Absolutely. If you want to learn about the therapies, particularly psychedelic therapies, uh, look into MAPS. So that's multi, uh, just, just MAPS, I forgot the acronym. <laughs> Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, M-A-P-S. They're amazing. They're doing the clinical studies on MDMA for PTSD. It's been going really well. They're going into third phase. They just published, um, their method to make multi-kilogram batches of MDMA for the scientific community so that more people would be able to practice this therapy because it has been so promising mm -hmm. and super exciting. We actually have MAPS clinical trials going on in Vancouver. Super cool. I think it's awesome, awesome, awesome research. I really respect the people doing it. Um, other resources to check into. So a lot of the ideas um, I mentioned today come from, in particular, Gabor Mate who's a Vancouver-based doctor. He works on the downtown east side. He wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Check it out. It's an amazing book. I would highly recommend it, um, where he talks about his own experiences treating people with addictions on the downtown east side. Uh, another book to check out, 
The Craving Mind by Judson Brewer. That's a book about how our brains crave things. And that's where he suggests that definition of addiction, um, continuous use despite negative consequence. I think it's extremely useful. I found it very useful in my own life to, to, to kind of like look at myself, gauge myself, see like, oh, I'm doing this too much, it's a problem, I can find ways to like be healthy with it, like mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, another resource to check out is Carl Hart. He's an incredible neuroscientist out of the United States who is really pro-legalizing uh, drugs. He talks a lot about how the issue isn't drugs, but the people using them, and then basically how to be a grown-up while using drugs. Um, he has a book called Drug Use for Grown-Ups. Great book. I would also very highly recommend it. And then, are there any other resources to check out? I don't know. Those are my recommendations. Check out Maps, Carl Hart, Gabor Mate, Judson Brewer. Some amazing information. Uh, I think Roland Griffith is the maps guy who's been doing the, um, the studies. Very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, those are my recommendations for today. Uh, do you have any final notes to leave us with? Um, don't do drugs. <laughs> don't do drugs. So, it's is been a, a great pleasure to talk to you today, Ben. Uh, for anyone listening, do make sure to check out his own podcast. It's uh, The B-Side with Ben Stiles. That's me. YouTube, Spotify. Yeah, yeah. All of the works. Uh, and you can follow us as well on YouTube at The Art of Science and Controversy, and then Instagram and TikTok at Tasac. That's T A S A C dot podcast. Is that your present? Tasac? Yes, yes, that's my, my own acronym. It's actually a. For anyone doing audio right now, you can't see, but for the video, I have right. a shirt right now that says Tasac. I on can it. zoom in on it from the camera if you want. Yeah, sure. As you can see, I am very, very proud of this shirt. It's pretty awesome. It has my acronym, and it has my name on the back. Oh. Big. There you go. Hey. Anyway. <laughs> uh, not available yet, but maybe coming soon. We'll see. Anyway. Have a wonderful day, everyone. And we will see you next time. See ya. Bye. <laughs> that was great, Quinn. Uh, that was fun.